You're listening to the Life Nomadic Podcast, a podcast of inspiration, life lessons, philosophy, honesty, stories from the road, and, well, whatever the hell else I want to talk about. I'm your host, Brandon Collins. So let's get weird. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Life Nomadic Podcast. I'm your host, Brandon Collins. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening. Hope you're doing great today. Uh, I'm doing great, actually. Um, And today, on this episode, we will be talking about something that I think is very, very important and honestly not talked about enough, um, especially in social spaces, uh, and that's therapy. Um, What it's like, um, who should go, what's to be expected, things like that. Normally, I would do um, a podcast like this just myself, but today I figured I'd bring in an actual professional, <laughs> someone who actually knows what they're talking about, um, and it's um, a pleasure uh, to to have a conversation with um, someone who was my professor at the University of Nevada, Reno. Um, it's a Dr. Adrienne Renwick. She is a PhD, a licensed clinical professional counselor. Uh, clinical alcohol drug counselor, and a clinical supervisor. Um, She earned her PhD in counselor education uh, and supervision from Oregon State University. Um, Additionally, she holds a Master of Arts in Counseling and Educational Psychology and an Advanced Certificate in Addiction and Treatment Services from uh, the University of Nevada, Reno. so in this episode, we're going to be talking about mental health and therapy and why it's important and, and what studies have been done and who therapy is for and what to expect and how to find a therapist, how to break up with your therapist, um, how to know if they're right with you or right for you. Um, and we're going to talk about some of her research that she's doing. Um, it's a very informative episode. So... I hope that you get something from this. Uh, sit back and enjoy. And here's Dr. Adrian Renwick. Um, so <clears throat> let's just start off just kind of quickly tell me about yourself. Just a quick synopsis. Uh, well, on a professional level, I am a licensed clinical professional counselor as well as licensed clinical alcohol and drug counselor. I work full-time up at the University of Nevada, Reno. I teach for the School of Public Health, um, CASAT Department, Center for the Application of Substance Abuse Treatment. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm also a clinical supervisor for both licensing boards. I just finished my PhD from Oregon State University on counselor education and supervision. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. I'm really excited that it's done. Yeah, I bet. On a personal level, I am, let's see, I'm a, a spouse, I'm a mother, I have two, two boys, they're 15 and 17, um, and then I have two stepkids, they're 23 and 26, mm. so our house is pretty full yeah, and exciting. Um, I grew up in a military family. Both my parents were in the army, so I grew up moving around the country and also lived in other places in the world, which did shape me uh, definitely as a professional and just human. Right. I don't know. What else? 
What else do you want to know? No, that's pretty good. Yeah. Okay. Just uh, just get a, a quick kind of snapshot. Um, and also, you were my professor at, uh, or one of my professors at UNR. Yeah. Um, for, was it group therapy or individual therapy? It w- Well, at that time, that class was individual and group therapy combined into one class. Oh, okay. It's since been separated. Um, so now there's a, an entire class dedicated to individual counseling skills and a separate one for group counseling. Well, because I took two different classes. You took 354. Mm-hmm. I took uh, Joe. Oh, yes. Joe, Joe Harvey Weatherford. Yeah. Yeah. I took her. Indiv- hers was individual, I think. And then yours was group. Yes. It was so, just so weird because there were half the class was online, half the class was that because that was during COVID, yeah. like right when COVID first hit. Yeah, yeah. And I think the world was still trying to figure out what to do. <sighs> what an insane time that was. Yes, confusing, and I agree. I did not like the format no. at all. And wasn't that was that one of your first classes? No, or no, you've been doing it for a while. I'd been doing it for a while, but that was the first time that I had to teach hybrid. I, right. And I've never had to teach since then in a hybrid model. I think the university figured out that that is really not a great way to no, conduct no. learning. No, it's not. So I think we were all stumbling through it. Yeah, that was tough. That was a tough couple of semesters. Mm-hmm. But we did it. We survived. Here we, we are. did. Um, Learned a lot. Yeah, we did. <laughs> yeah, 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 we did. Um, yeah, so... Um, I kind of want to do a couple of definitions um, okay. before we get started just to kind of give give the listeners like um, uh, a jumping off point, if you will. Okay. Um, so I want to start with what is your definition of mental health? Like what does mental health mean to you? Mm. So I think we can look at it in two different ways, either from a strengths-based or a deficit perspective. And so when I look at it from a strengths-based perspective, I think of mental health as those strategies and coping skills, ways of dealing with problems over the years um, that really serve us and contribute to our wellness. Sometimes we have maladaptive ways of coping with things or... um, you know, other factors, environmental or biological, that can sometimes impact our functioning. And when that happens, not necessarily that there's a deficit, but more so it doesn't, sometimes how we operate in the world doesn't necessarily serve us and can impact our relationships, um, our functioning in the workplace, educational settings, uh, so on and so forth. And that's where we would call, that's what we would call a um, disorder. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. And I like that you, you said something about, um, uh, strengths and, and like coping, coping mechanisms. Yeah. And I think that, and, and I would really like you to help me kind of dispel this, um, the stigma that's, that surrounds mental health because people talk about physical health, like it's just a thing you do. Yeah. But as soon as the word mental health comes up, people start to, kind of clam up or they get nervous or they don't want to talk about it and to me that seems so bizarre because I view mental health exactly the same way that I view physical health Mm -hmm. so I go to the gym I do physical fitness activities 
I eat correctly. I, I pay attention to, um, to how my body moves and how it doesn't want to move. But also when it comes to mental health, I do the same thing. Mm-hmm. I do, like you said, um, things that serve me or things that don't serve me. I steer clear of those. Um, you know, especially when it comes to things like alcohol and, and drugs, like I don't do those things anymore because they didn't serve me. Yeah. They were doing the opposite. They were making my life worse. And so how do we, how do we mitigate that? How do we, how do we get people to view mental health the same way that they view physical health? And, and mind you, if you're listening and I know there are people out there who don't pay attention to their physical health either, which is fine. Like I'm not, you know, not everyone has to, but I do feel like we do that much easier than we would with mental health. Yeah, I agree. And I, you know, it's something that I've thought thought about quite often because obviously, well, let me back up. I think there's a few different factors that contribute as to why we pay more attention to physical health. Um, one, I think it's more tangible. It's mm. something that you're more, and not everyone, but we're conditioned to really be in tune with our bodies. And sometimes there's really visibly um, obvious signs that things are not right. Right. Um, I think there are more systems to support physical health. And when I think about mental health, a lot of what we know about it came from our families. So how we deal with problems, how we deal with emotions, um, what's okay to talk about, what do you need to manage on your own? I think there's a lot of gender um, stereotypes that go into it Mm. or expectations. Oh, Um, absolutely. So, I mean, when I think about in our society, you know, for example, I think male and male presenting folks are not necessarily encouraged to to talk about their emotions and disclose information. Um, and and there's also this expectation of you have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I think as a society, we tend to be more individualistic in that. Absolutely. Sense. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually glad that you brought up that point about um, the different um, gender-based kind of expectations mm-hmm. um, because I'm definitely um, a feminist. I'm definitely someone who's really doing the best that he can to help raise um, those who don't haven't been afforded the same opportunities that someone like myself has being a cis white male. Mm-hmm. However, there is this kind of like you said where um in terms of mental health where men are a lot of times and male presenting uh people are taught that you're not supposed to have emotions or you're just supposed to be a man and deal with it and on the and and worse than that if you do show emotions you're made fun of you're ostracized you're looked down upon you're called a girl or way worse names yeah and that's one of the that's one of the things I really want to accomplish with this podcast is not only do I want everyone in general to be more comfortable talking about mental health, but men specifically mm-hmm. because I'm a manly kind of guy, you know, like I'm yeah. athletic and I work on vehicles and I do the things that are socially kind of constructed as manly, mm-hmm. but I'm also will cry my eyes out right in front of you and not even care. Yeah. Because why not? Like I'm, I'm strong physically and mentally that I'm okay with doing that. Mm -hmm. And 
if you're not okay with that, I'm not saying that you're wrong because I'm definitely not saying that, but I'm saying that it's okay and you can. And, um, yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up. Um, and speaking of mental health, um, like, well, so what I was saying with like physical health, it was funny the other day I, um, was telling someone that, um, I made an appointment with my therapist and they're like, is everything okay? Yeah. Everything's fine. I'm just, I I like to do once a year, I'll find a therapist and meet with them for a couple of weeks and just talk about stuff. And maybe something will come up that needs to be talked about or maybe not, you know, and it's the same as when I go to my primary care doctor, if I'm like, oh, I have a doctor's appointment. No one even thinks twice about it. (laughs) Right. They're like, oh, okay, cool. You know? Yeah. But like. So I definitely want to, um, and, and, and the entire purpose of this episode is to talk about therapy and the importance mm-hmm. of therapy. And I figured who other to talk to about it than a therapist. So, um, yeah. so what, oh, you were going to say something? I was just going to say, you bring up a good point in terms of, you know, another thought that came to mind as you were speaking was that I think that we we tend to associate therapy with being unwell and yeah. there, and that is the only reason that you would go to a therapist. And I will say that we tend to be more reactive as a society and particularly about emotions and, and mental health and well-being. So maybe that's part of it, but it's really cool that you're normalizing this idea of, Hey, I don't necessarily have to have something wrong. It's more of a maintenance yeah. or going in and just having an opportunity to get a different perspective. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And it, what what's funny too is health, the word health, just at least in my mind, and I, I don't have like the actual, you know, Oxford dictionary <laughs> definition of health, but to me health is when, is things running smoothly, mm-hmm. like the health of your car, the health of your pets, the health of yourself, your physical health, your mental health should be the same thing. And, and mm-hmm. whenever we hear mental health, we automatically think of mental disorders or um, any of those other things that are associated with it uh, other than what mental health is. And that's just making sure that your mind is running smoothly. Right. Or as smoothly as possible. Right. Um, and yeah, so that's that's kind of what, um, what I'd really like t- to try and do. And I was actually talking to someone the other day and um, they were telling me how uh, he was like, oh, yeah, you um, I listen I, I listened to one of your podcasts and I didn't know it was so much about mental health. I thought it was going to be about like traveling and stuff. And the tone of his voice made it sound like he wasn't interested in anything that had to do with mental health, oh. because I think that he felt like it's not something that he needs to listen to. Right. Which is fine. But it 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 kind of it hit me in a weird, weird place. And, and we were not in an appropriate setting to like have a conversation about it. And right. so I was like, yeah, no, no worries. But that's, that's the thing, you know, people will listen to, and this isn't this person, but just kind of people in general will listen to physical fitness podcasts and, um, do all these things that, that, that help and benefit their physical fitness. But soon as you talk about mental health or mental fitness, Right. Everyone kind of clams up. And so 
Yeah, again, that's why that's why and the the podcast is called the Life Nomadic Podcast, but the Life Nomad Life Nomadic is like my pseudo name. That's everything I do has that name attached to it. Right. And I've learned a lot through not only in academia, but also um, with plant-based medicines and just traveling and and living and working in different cultures about mental health mm-hmm. and how their perspectives are so much different on it, but also the same. Like we were talking about Italy. Don't even think about talking about your emotions in Italy. Oh. Like that's not a thing. Absolutely. Unless not. you get shit faced and then it's okay. Right. So like that's their therapy in a way. Um, not that that's healthy in any way, but <laughs> right. Yeah. And the um, only time those emotions or, or yeah, yeah. free flow of conversation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uninhibited. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I've learned being sober for as long as I have been that you don't, I don't need alcohol to lubricate these conversations. I can just make the conversation happen. But it took me a long time to figure that out. Anyway, I digress. Um, so why do you think that therapy is important? I think therapy, oh, well, there's a few different reasons. One of the things I was thinking about as you were talking about fitness podcasts and, and things yeah. of that nature is that the brain is a muscle like any other in the sense that if you want to create new ways of doing things, it takes practice right. and it takes intentional thought and a plan in order to achieve those objectives. And so I think therapy, it, it creates a space in which that can happen. Um, it's not the end all be all though, because you go into therapy once a week for an hour and really it's about taking whatever skills you learn in that setting and bringing it out. Um, But I also think it helps create insight. And I think that's the biggest, uh, or it's not the only, but I think it's a really main takeaway for therapy is that the idea is to create a sense of self-awareness about how your life is, um, how you're at where you're at right now. And what were the factors that contributed to it, um, be it internal or external. And I think that that's why therapy is important is that it's a, a safe space, ideally, where you can connect with another human. And mm-hmm. that's the other piece about it. Your relationship with your therapist, it symbolizes relationships that you have outside that room. Oh, yeah. So you can learn so much about yourself and how you operate in the world and how you operate with other people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, that's so funny. I was not expecting you to say that. I was expecting you to, I, I didn't know what you were going to say, Yeah. but I did not expect that because that's something that I found through therapy um, because I, I can't remember where I saw this or read this, but someone said that we live our lives as if we're in a movie, right? Mm-hmm. We're the main actor in the movie. And then you have supporting cast, which are like your close friends and family. Yeah. And then you have the extras, right? People that are at the grocery store that you don't pay attention to, that don't have names in the credits. You know what I mean? They're not part of SAG. Right. And so when you go to therapy, it's like after you filmed a movie, you're going to the theater to watch the movie that you were just in. So like mm-hmm. when you're, cause I've, I've filmed a handful of movies and when you're in the scenes, you don't, you're not, re- you don't really see what's going on cause you're in it. But then watching the movie later, you get to yeah. watch how you act. You get to watch how you interact with all the other characters in the scene. Um, and so therapy, in, in a way, as you were saying, is kind of like a way of 
watching rewatching a movie that you just were in because yeah. you can't see the forest of the trees, right? You can't you it's really hard to see how you act and react and interact with other people because yeah. you're doing it from the inside of your this meat suit that we're wearing. Right. And going to therapy is a good way of having that reflected back at you so you get a chance to look at it and really evaluate kind of how you are in the world. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm so glad that you said that because I never, I didn't think about it until just now and I'm like, oh wait, ding. Yeah. This is why, this is why I love podcasts so much because I learn, I don't even care if anyone's listening, like I'm learning <laughs> right learning now. It. Yeah. Um, yeah, and you yeah. said there was, is there any other ones that you were thinking about that's like why therapy is so important? I think that, no, I think those really, um, I think those are probably the overarching ones. I yeah. mean, you can go on, on all of these different tangents, but I mean, one thought that just came to mind as you were speaking is that there's been an evolution of therapy. We've gone from this psychoanalytic, psychodynamic where, you know, perspective where the therapist is somewhat removed mm-hmm. and there is that expert kind of role that they take on more to a relational um way of interacting with clients. Right. Um, and I think with that, you know, how often do you sit in a room with somebody where they tell their experience of you in that yeah. moment to help create that insight? Right. It doesn't really happen. Right. Yeah. Because it's always, it's always seen through some kind of a rose colored lens, you right. know, even through your own eyes or from your friends. Cause your friends, yeah. as much as they pretend like they're going to be honest with you, they're not going to be honest with you. Yeah. I don't think that they can. And it's not polite. Let's be no, honest. Yeah, it's yeah, not yeah, polite yeah. in society yeah. to right. say, Hey, this is how you're impacting me. Right. Right. Which I think we could work on as a society. I think we'd be much better off. Um, however, that's a whole nother podcast. Right. Um, yeah. And, and so, Going back to what you said um, earlier about how it's um, good for kind of self-reflection. Mm-hmm. One of the more important things that I've done in my life, and I won't get too into the weeds with this, but is when I when I did my ayahuasca ceremony in um, in Peru, it gave me a chance to really look at how I affect other people and how my yes. actions um, affect others in in. I think a lot of time with with humans um, and a lot of what uh, and I'm speaking from a Western perspective, Western culture is we're so focused on what we're doing right. and how life is affecting us that we forget how we're affecting other people. Mm-hmm. And when you're able to turn that back and reflect inside and 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 understand how you um, interact with other people and how you affect other people, it actually makes you feel so much more better about yourself. Right. Um, especially if you're doing it right. Right. And if you're not, then, and you change it, it's, it's this weird kind of, I don't even know what the word of it, word for it is. It's, it's a dynamic where the more you, the more that you understand how you affect other people, the more you can be empathetic for them. Yes. And then in turn, it makes your relationships better. Yeah. And then if your relationships are better, you're better. Absolutely. Like, so it's like, you don't even have to go to a therapist to work on what's going on in your own head. You can just work on how you are with other people, mm-hmm. which is just going to make your life better anyway. With your spouse, you know, you could be 
um, constantly butting heads with your spouse about something and then you go to therapy and your therapist is like, you're doing it. Right, <laughs> right. <You know? laughs> and then you're able to admit that to them and then you speak with your spouse and, and you know how to navigate that and the next thing you know, your relationship is so much better. Right. I'm not saying that it's going to be your fault. It could be your spouse's fault. It could be no one's fault. It could just be a miscommunication that you're not like. Yeah. It's always nice to have an outside perspective, a subjective no, sorry, objective perspective um, of how you are. And so that kind of leads me into the next question. Like, you don't have to have any kind of disorder. You don't have to be struggling with anything to go to therapy. Right. So in your opinion, like who, who is therapy actually for? In a perfect world, I and, and really this is one of the trends that I've seen in mental health, which I'm really excited about, is the destigmatization of mental health Absolutely. and normalization of seeking um, or taking proactive measures rather than being reactive. Right. Um, it really is for everyone. And it would be wonderful if I could work myself out of a job one day and to where it's, it's more about wellness based, Mm -hmm. um, strategies and interventions rather than serving people in their moments of crisis. Not that that isn't going to happen, but wouldn't it be wonderful if we could build the skill set from a very young age where people can learn how to kind of navigate some of these challenges, Mm -hmm. um, independently or interdependently with others um, because there's a there's a language that exists or a space that exists to be able to do that right um can you uh can you define interdependently I know what it means yeah like yeah I just want to make sure everyone knows yeah um interdependency is this idea that we don't operate in isolation or alone um and we're not necessarily dependent on other people to do things for us. It's more of a, a, a symbiotic relationship where there's a give and take, um, but um, we're helping each other out. Right. So I'm not alone in this world, um, but you know, together I can work with somebody in order to solve a problem. Right. That's that's another really amazing thing about um, being able to talk about therapy openly is. I meet, so I'll meet people or, or someone will send me an email or something. Um, and it's that camaraderie, Mm -hmm. you know, Oh, I go to therapy too. That's cool. And then I'll have friends that I've known for years will come up to me or text me or whatever and say, dude, I've been going to therapy forever. It's helped me so Mm -hmm. much. I've, I'm always so weird about talking about it. And I'm so glad that you, that you talk about it so openly. So now I can talk about it openly. And it's so cool because everyone Everyone benefits from it. Everyone really does in society. So this is one of the parts that really bugs me about how our medical system is set up. Um, And so I'm a veteran, so I go through the VA for my insurance. I can't just say I want to go to therapy. Right. I have to, I have to, if you're, if you work for the VA, just plug your ears now. (laughs) I have to fucking lie and say that something's wrong so that I can go see a therapist. Yeah. So then the first thing they say when we, when I meet them or they pop on Zoom or is like, okay, so what's going on? Nothing. 
I just want to do like a check-in, but I had to like fake a, you know. A disorder. Exactly. Not <laughs> even a disorder, just like something's, my hair's on fire kind right. of thing. Symptom- you know? Yeah, and the symptoms. Otherwise they wouldn't do it. And I don't know how private insurance works, but I'm assuming it's probably very similar. It is. It's actually one of the reasons that um, I don't like our billing systems yeah. and the insurance system, you have to have a diagnosis in order to get reimbursed or your client has to have a diagnosis in order to get reimbursement. I remember learning that. Yeah. So, and it is one of the reasons that, you know, professionally I have gravitated more towards nonprofit. Most of my career has been spent in nonprofit settings or school-based government settings where right. there's funding that can be allocated or uh, acquired through grant writing in order to provide therapy. Um, at no cost or at a reduced cost and making it more accessible. Right. Because, yeah, it's... And as a therapist, you know, this is as a supervisor, I teach my interns that you don't want to go with the most pathologizing diagnosis because right. diagnoses can follow people. Absolutely. And sometimes they can be helpful for people because it gives a shared language or an understanding of, Hey, wow, I'm not crazy. This is like a real thing that I've been experiencing and here are all the symptoms within this diagnosis. And that can be helpful, but it can also be really traumatizing for people to receive a diagnosis or, you know, I worked in the court system also for quite some time and folks would come in with a litany of diagnoses and diagnosing, let's be honest, is subjective. It's dependent on the lens of the therapist or medical professional providing it. And it's not always, um, doesn't always take in uh, human aspects um, or the spectrum of normal. So we can really harm people. Yeah, I agree. Um, And can can you reverse a diagnosis? You, I mean... It always lives in a medical record somewhere. Um, Yes, as a professional, I can say, you know, again, I'm going to start off with the least stigmatizing. Hey, this sounds more like adjustment disorder. Um, And maybe go that route before diagnosing something heavy like a personality disorder or, you know, something in that Mm -hmm. realm um, or other really stigmatizing diagnoses. But yeah. I can go ahead and change my diagnosis, but it still lives in a medical record somewhere. Right. So, which is one of the reasons why you want to go with least stigmatizing. Right. I think I remember um, either reading about this or being taught this, that there are a handful of quote unquote generalized kind of disorders that therapists can go to that aren't as stigmatizing, but it's also enough to get their therapy paid for through their insurance. Yeah. And I don't know those because like I said, mm-hmm. I, my, um, experience with private practice was pretty brief. I ended up giving therapy for free cause I was like, I don't even want to deal with these insurance right. companies. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> didn't last long. Um, but yes, there are some diagnoses. Right. Adjustment disorder is one of them. Right. Um, and you can specify with anxious features, with depressed features rather than diagnosing something like major depressive disorder. Right. Um, to me, that sounds, I, I'm, I'm happy that that's a thing, but I'm also very disappointed that that has to be a thing. Right. That, that has to be a system set up so that people can get the help that they need. Right. Without being labeled with, and, and I, and I'm not, I'm not saying that a diagnosis is bad, but like we said, it can follow you. 
And so I don't want anyone to be worried about being diagnosed by anything because it's right. it's not it's not the end of the world. It's not like and like you said, like when when I when I got diagnosed with um, substance use disorder, that helped me deal with it so much more because now right. I knew I knew that it wasn't I wasn't just um, someone who drank a lot. I right. was someone who probably shouldn't drink. And that meant that there was something else going on beneath beneath the surface of that. So it yeah. gave me an opportunity to kind of go, you know what? This problem has a name for it and I can put it over here. Yes. Let's go find out. Let's get underneath it and figure out what's actually making that thing a thing. And now my sobriety is so much easier because I now know what that underlying um, problem was. And, and I remember in Joe's class, she always talked about yeah. The thing that, that, that your client tells you, it's never the thing. It's always something else. There's something underneath that. And so I kind of turned that on myself. Um, so yeah, don't be afraid of diagnosis. No, definitely not. Yeah. And as mentioned, it can be helpful for some people. Yeah. Um, but I think that's where the relationship between therapist and client, I mm-hmm. mean, it should be a collaborative process. I mean, yeah. again, therapist is coming in as an expert in, um, in whatever you know in that realm yeah. however I I will say this is my opinion I don't think diagnoses should be um handed out as freely as sometimes they are yeah yeah no I agree and it's also like it's kind of the it's like a double-edged sword like right. you don't want to be handing out diagnosis like candy but you also don't want people to not be able to get the help that they need so exactly yeah I being a therapist can't be an easy job (laughs) but like sorry uh speaking of people who've um like with with that get diagnosis is diagnoses how do you how do you say that plural diagnoses diagnoses um two of my favorite humans shout out to Kalista and Gaia they have a podcast as well it's called Tattoo Home Records and they talk about um they have their uh, being on the spectrum and ADHD and, yeah. and they talk about it so freely and I love it because it shouldn't be like if I was to tell you that um, that I like pulled my calf muscle, we could just have a conversation about it and no one would even think twice about it. Right. But if I was to say, you know, like I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder or something, the other person's reaction could be like, <gasps> right, you know, like. Or it gets all hush-hush or whatever. And yeah, I think that diagnosing definitely helps. But like you said, yeah, it can hurt too. So that's just one of those things that we have to try and navigate as a society. Yeah. Um, I think there's a cultural component to it also. Yeah. Um, we're, we're talking about a specific set of symptomology. Um, like I'll take grief, for example. Uh, you know, Studies have been done over the years in terms of, um, you know, trying to determine how long uh, people who come from the United States, how long is a socially appropriate length of time to grieve the death of somebody? Oh. And research showed that most people said two months. What? I know. It's shocking. Um, Okay. And more recently, um, there were adjustments made to the diagnostic statistical manual in the newest edition where it added prolonged grief disorder 
uh, where we're looking at or at least acknowledging that grief can be prolonged, especially, you know, mm. in this particular diagnosis only pertains to death, which also is odd to me because you think about it, grief can come in so many different forms. Yeah, a breakup, a loss of a job. Right, exactly. But, you know, other parts of the world don't necessarily have that belief that something should be so so short term. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, how do you qualify it as a disorder? Yeah, I I can't remember what country I was in, somewhere in Asia, but it's... um, it's almost a social requirement that you grieve for one full year. Right. Whether you need to or not. <laughs> and so like, I mean, there's there's both sides to that coin, right? Like every single person, like it's impossible for two people to be able to grieve the same way. Right. Um, a little personal information earlier this year was really tough for me. I had a handful of deaths yeah. in the family, around the family, uh, and it was a lot for me. Um, but the people in my life who were dealing with each of those different um, um, things all grieved completely differently. Mm-hmm. Some were really like emotional about it. Some were completely shut off and some it didn't affect at all. And, and when I have conversations with them, a lot of times they would ask me, you know, am I doing this right? right. And I'm like, there's no right or wrong way. Mm-hmm. The fact that you're questioning whether you're doing it right or not is good enough, I think, Absolutely. because you're looking inward and you're paying attention and you're and you're thinking to yourself, how should I be doing this? Mm-hmm. And then all I would ever answer was, well, how do you feel like you should? Mm-hmm. If you feel like laughing it off and not dealing with it, then maybe that's what you need to do, at least for now. Right. Um, if you need to lock your door and cry in your room for four days, do that, too. Like, yeah. just do do the thing that makes sense to you and then after it kind of chills out and I even told everyone like you should go see a grief counselor yes you you don't have to it doesn't have to be considered therapy or any of those things you're not broken you just need to go talk to someone who has experience and how to deal with those things because we're not taught how to deal with honestly any mental health stuff when when we're kids um, whether it be from our parents or in schools and and I think mm-hmm. that that could fix a lot of issues that we have as a society, as a culture now, is if we learn how to deal with life in a positive way, um, I feel like we'd be so much better off. Yeah. So I think that therapy's for everyone. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. And, you know, this is another cool trend I've been seeing across the country is um, introducing some mental health strategies to kids at a younger age when you look at um, I've heard of some schools doing like a mindful meditation every morning on the on the intercom so that everybody's participating in it but that's working that muscle your brain to learn new skills for when you become dysregulated or when things happen that are out of your control okay what are some skills that I can lean on to help bring myself to a space where I can think it through or not respond in a in a way that's not advantageous to me absolutely and the rest of the folks around me yeah yeah I actually do have a couple of friends who are um, teachers from uh, elementary school all the way up to high school and um, a number of them have told me that they they'll have an hour or so 
once a month or once a week and they'll talk to their students about yeah like how they're doing where they're at um some coping mechanisms uh christina um, i've had her on the on the podcast um she talked about how she would tell her students to she's gonna be so mad at me because i forgot but it's like you count five things and then you like five smells and then you say yes. four things that you see and three things that you hear mm-hmm. and just something simple like that had I been taught that as a kid when I was younger that yeah. would have made that would have made adolescence so much easier to deal with so much easier you know because as it sits you know I grew up in the 80s so like mm-hmm. you that wasn't allowed to talk about those kinds of things which actually brings me to a, a question I wanted to ask you yeah <clears throat> excuse me so I've heard from a number of people, both in person and on the internets, and they say things like, oh my God, everyone has ADHD. Everyone's got this. Everyone's diagnosed with this. Blah, 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 blah. Is it, I think personally, that it seems like everyone is because we're now more aware of it and we're talking about it more openly? Right. Or that's how I think. That's how I think. Yeah. Yeah. Or do you think maybe it's, it is what they're saying that people are just, just because you're, you're a little hyperactive, you're a little hyperactive. So let's just give the kid a bunch of drugs and call him ADHD or whatever it is. Yeah. Is that a controversial question? <laughs> well, I mean, there are different schools of thought. I'll, I'll say that. Um, personally, I think it is a blend of things. I do think that part of it, like you're saying, is an increased sense of awareness. Yeah. So something like autism, why are we seeing so many um, or such a higher rate of diagnosis? Well, yeah. it's probably because we're recognizing the symptomology. In it's not from vaccines? I can't speak on that. <laughs> I'm not, it's out of my scope of competency and practice. <laughs> I, could, I couldn't help myself. Sorry. Go ahead. Um, but what I... I do think that there's an element of that. So we're recognizing the symptomology mm. where there's more interventions in place to to be able to diagnose. And I also think that perception is shaped by popular culture in mm. some ways. And so I think there's an element of that too is sometimes we're seeing things from a specific lens because of all of the information coming in. Um to shape that perception and assign meaning. So what do I mean by that? You see TikTok videos. This is something that we kind of joke about in the field. You'll see TikTok videos with um, dissociative identity disorder, um, which is a fairly rare disorder historically. Mm -hmm. And now all of a sudden, everybody's coming in for therapy saying, I have dissociative identity disorder. It used to be multiple personality disorder. Right, right, right. So we kind of joke and is it, is it real DID or is it TikTok DID? Because <laughs> your perception of yourself can right. also be shaped yeah. by what you're viewing. And so it's a really hard question to answer. I think it's probably a little bit of both, yeah. honestly. I have I, like the the whole, I remember when, when, when I was in my undergrad, one of the things that they said is when you get a DSM, don't look through it and start diagnosing yourself. And yes. of course, what's the first thing that I did? couple of friends we sat around on the, on the floor and started diagnosing each other and it was we didn't take it super seriously but it also did right. kind of make you think oh wow I do kind of check off a couple of these boxes but if you're if you're young and impressionable that could 
and coming from an influencer or whatever on TikTok, I feel like that could be um, something that could lead you to believe things that maybe aren't necessarily true, which is yet another reason why you should go to therapy. Yeah. And let's be honest, we all check off boxes. 100%. That's, I mean, there's there's a, a range of normal and, you know, we might feel emotionally dysregulated. Maybe we have struggles in relationships. Does that mean that we have borderline personality disorder? No, not necessarily. Right. So I think it's... Um, it's helpful. Again, I think this goes back to what we were talking about before is that sometimes labels can be helpful and diagnoses mm. can be helpful. Right. And sometimes it can pathologize unnecessarily. Right. Well, and I, I've said this before on the podcast, we're all broken. Like nobody's, yep. nobody's got everything together. And, and if you did, I would, I feel like there's definitely something wrong with you. If there's nothing wrong with you, does that make sense? Like, yes. Um, I think I shared this in class. I had a professor one time who said, there's two kinds of people in this world, people with issues and dead people. <laughs> yeah. It's true. Exactly. To be human and to right. be in existence right. means that we're going to struggle and, right. and have issues. Well, that's part of the human experience, you know? So I'm, I'm a huge like fan and proponent of um, free will as an illusion. Mm-hmm. And I know it's a very controversial topic. But we're just, so our, if you want to call it a consciousness, we're just observers. We're just along for the ride. And so over, I don't even know how I'm going to explain this. It would be way more impossible for everything to work perfectly than it would be for some things to not work perfectly. Right. Does that make sense? Yes. Statistically improbable. Right. Yeah. It's statistically improbable that everything is running perfectly smoothly all the time. That's not to say that you can't go, you know, days or maybe even weeks where everything's running kind of smoothly. Right. But there's always going to be some speed bumps because life does not care that you exist. Life is going to do the thing that life does and how you are able to navigate that, I think, defines you as a person. Absolutely. And so... Going back to what you said about the self-reflection thing, I think that's, I'm so glad that you said that. That makes so much sense. That yeah. makes, that makes me want to go to therapy way more often <laughs> because I, I really do. So I meditate a little bit and even sometimes to a fault, I think about how I, my actions, um, and the way that I interact with other people, how it affects them. Yeah. Um, and I've really wished that more people did that. Um, so let's, you, you'd said this earlier and I want to, I want to go back to it. You said something about there's different types of therapies yeah. and, um, I want to dispel another kind of myth okay. or, um, stigma behind, you know, people think that when you go to therapy, you lay on a couch and then some guy with a pipe talks yes. about your dreams to you. Yeah, Freud. And that's, yeah, and that's 100% not what happens. Maybe there are some psychoanalysts that are still like that, but I really don't think that's how it is. No. Um, so can we, let's go over a couple of different types of therapies because I do know that the type of therapy that, that I like is the kind of therapy that you kind of taught where it's, the therapist doesn't really say anything. 
you just kind of reflect on what they're saying. And then, cause I want to do the work. I want to, I want to figure things out. I just need a sounding board, something to bounce off of. Right. Um, but some people, I, I had a roommate who was like, I hate that kind of therapy. I need to be told what to do. Yeah. So there's different types of therapists and different types of, um, of therapeutic. What's the word? Interventions or Practices, modalities? Modalities, that's yeah. the one, yeah. Uh, different kind of therapeutic modalities. Yeah. So th- let's, can we go through a couple of like a yeah. more popular ones so that people who are listening can be like, oh, you know what? I kind of like that one. Yeah. There are so many out there, I know. honestly. <laughs> yeah. And I'll, I'll start with what, you know, I, before identifying a few of them, I look at one of the roles of a therapist is to be a jack of all traits. I mean, oh, okay. it's like wearing a, a tool bag, right? Um, you want to make sure you have the appropriate tool tool for whatever uh, project you're working on. Not that a client is a project, but more so you're not going to use a screwdriver to hammer in a nail. Totally. I get the analogy. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I think that, you know, as, as we've evolved as a profession, I think the idea is that we are more eclectic in practice and that we're learning lots of different tools so that we can serve all of our clients. Because it's really the client who should be the person um, guiding or, right. or leading things. As yeah. you said, some people don't really want a lot of advice or, and it's not really a therapist's role to give advice. Yeah. Um, but yeah, or it might be more of like a sounding board, just holding space for somebody so they can feel safe to be vulnerable. Right. So your question is difficult to answer in that sense okay. because there are some more, I mean, there's some po- popular um, modalities, like for example, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a very structured modality. Right. So that's looking at how your thoughts impact your behaviors, which then impact, uh, or I'm sorry, thoughts impact your feelings, which then impact your, your behavior. So right. for example, you're driving down the road and, you know, cognitive, a CBT therapist might, um, analyze you or not analyze, that's the wrong word to use, but work with you mm-hmm. on changing some of your thoughts so that right. you don't have an emotional reaction that is going to affect your behavior negatively. Right. Um, so you're driving down the road, you, uh, somebody cuts you off. What's your automatic thought? Actually, that's funny that you asked that because my <laughs> actual thought is, and, and I'll, I'll answer, I'll answer my current thought. Okay. My current thought is I'm not part of that person's life. Okay. So that person has no clue that I'm even probably even here. They didn't do it on purpose. They're not doing it because they think that I suck at life. They're just moving over into the lane. So I'll be annoyed for a short second and then right. I'll tell myself it's not that big of a deal. Just move on with your life. Yeah. However, earlier Brandon, younger Brandon would be like, what the fuck? You know, right. like, why do you, because you, you think that this person purposefully saw you, saw who you were and then cut you off on purpose. Right. Which right. is not usually, I mean, that's not reality. most people don't actually operate that way. No. I mean, some people, yeah. but most people don't. It right. usually is um, something more accidental or not paying attention or right. I'm in a rush because I have, you know, this whole life event happening in right exactly yeah um but yeah to your point most people will say you know the automatic thought is more negative or just this idea of like they did this on purpose how dare they Mm -hmm. screw you to me how dare they make me slow down by two miles an hour 
Right. Yeah. And so the feeling that you get from that is anger, frustration, mm-hmm. sometimes rage. Right. And then you might, in your behavioral response, go to cut somebody off yep. or tailgate them or drive yep. by them and make sure they see your middle finger sticking up. Right. Um, which is going to probably have potential negative effects. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you might get pulled over. Somebody might be more enraged than you are. Right. Um, and then this altercation ensues. Point being, CBT is exactly what you described, which is learning how to change your automatic thoughts so that you can have a different emotional response, which then impacts your behavior differently. Right. So that's one. That's a pretty popular and well-researched type of modality. Um, I lean into what's called existentialism, which is this idea that to be human is to suffer. We are not alone in that, Mm -hmm. yet we're inherently alone. Right. Um, but in our suffering, meaning can be found. And so it's a less structured therapy. It's more of a philosophy, um, you know, and just a, a lens, a way of looking at my clients that I'm working with or um, but really trying to help them determine meaning in their own life. Right. So um, it's very Buddhist of you. <laughs> <laughs> I've not actually practiced any kind of Buddhism. So really? I, no, I haven't. So I'm not familiar um, with it's the tenets of It's all about suffering. It. Okay. <laughs> so then, yes, I'm a natural Buddhist. <laughs> yeah, you are. Yeah. So if someone was to like want to maybe reach out to someone to be a therapist. Yeah. Um, like what, how would they, be, how would they even start that process? Yeah, I would say, so this is a really good question. One, you want to check, I think calling the person and having a a few key questions to ask. um, Mm -hmm. I mean, because it's so relational, you want to make sure that you have a good fit. And I also want to normalize the fact that not every therapist is going to fit with every client. Absolutely, And that's okay if you go into therapy and you realize that your therapist isn't really the best fit for you, don't be scared to seek another therapist. Mm -hmm. I also want to add the caveat though, to really question yourself is the reason that I don't feel a connection to the client, to the therapist. uh, Is that the reason or is the reason because I feel challenged in the confrontation or the, the feedback that they're offering to me? Um, Because that can happen too. And sometimes people will hop from therapist to therapist because they're, maybe not ready to look. Oh, I see what you're saying. Inwardly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but if you're looking for a therapist, I think, you know, looking at elements of identity, do you prefer a male, female, um, or, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of the term and it's not coming to me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But looking at gender, I think looking at, um, you know, culture, I think different... You know, we, we tend to want to surround ourselves with people who are like us. And I think yeah. that sometimes those, you know, people who are more like us or share elements of our identity can be more impactful. Mm-hmm. Um, so searching for that, we live in a pretty white community. Um, so that can be harder to find. Although with the, uh, ad, you know, introduction of telehealth, that can be easier to find somebody right. um, with more diverse identities that might be more in alignment with you. Right. I think looking at licensure, um, you want to look at, you know, are they a marriage and family therapist? Are they a clinical professional counselor, a clinical psychologist, clinical social worker? 
every license is going to have a different way of training. And so making sure that whatever it is that you're looking for, it's in alignment with what, what you need. Right. Um, theoretical perspective. I think it's totally reasonable to ask your therapist, Hey, what practice do you come from? Like, how do you work with clients? How do you recognize progress or how do you measure progress? What can I expect, um, in our meetings with you? Um, so I think those are some. And so if you're, if you're, let's say for example, you're just looking for a therapist, you don't, you can, you can't just like type in Reno therapist. Or can you? You can. Okay. And you can go on, there's a website, Psychology Today. Right. Um, so there's, you can definitely type in uh, Reno mental health therapist or mental health counselor, and you can come up with a whole list of folks. I would definitely check in with a few. I think one of the things that our community is suffering from right now is a lack of therapists. Yeah. So unfortunately, one of the barriers that we're seeing is these really lengthy wait lists. Um, Oh, okay. So, I mean, that's another challenge to navigate. Right. Um, So also, um, I think what I was trying to ask is, so there's, there's different kinds of therapists. You have, you know, you have um, marriage and family therapists, you have um, Mm -hmm. um, substance use disorder addiction therapists, like all these different kinds of therapists. Yeah. If you were just a regular per, I don't want to say regular person. If you're just a person who wants to, what type of therapist would you seek? Like marriage and family doesn't sound like it would be, or but would it be? It could be. Yeah. I mean, just because the name implies that they only work with families and couples, that's not necessarily the case. Right. It's about scope of practice and scope of competency. So scope of practice for all of the licenses that I had mentioned is similar. The only um, difference is uh, clinical psychologists are the only ones that can conduct psychometric testing. So if you're looking for like a diagnosis of ADHD or autism or Mm. not that you're seeking a diagnosis, but if you think that that's something that you're experiencing, you might go to a clinical psychologist in order to have uh, an evaluation done and then continue to see them for therapy or you might seek another therapist. Um, Not that therapy, you know, other, the other licenses can't offer that. Uh Um, however they can't conduct psychometric testing. Oh, okay. So I think that's one of that goes back to scope of practice, but I mean, I would just ask your, like anybody that you're looking at or considering, ask them what their scope of practice is. Um, okay. Yeah. Somebody who has licensure as a substance abuse counselor and can, you know, their scope of practice is to treat substance use disorders or substance misuse. Um, they can't really delve into the mental health world, even though there's a lot of crossover. Right. Right. Um, Right. You can't really say definitively did the substance use, um, cause some of my depression or did depression contribute to my substance use? It's hard to say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, does that answer? Yeah, kind of. Question? So I just actually jumped on psychology today yeah. and you, you can actually click through gender. Um, like there's a thing that says issues. So you click on issues and it's like, which one of these do you think maybe might be something that you're dealing with? Self-esteem, yeah. grief, um, depression, anger management, anxiety. And you click on the thing and then it lists 
yeah. the therapists that um, would be good for that. There's gender, there's types of therapies. So there's mindfulness-based, CBT, like you said, family therapy, trauma-focused, mm-hmm. um, play therapy, which I think is amazing. Yep. Um, Christian counseling. So if you're if you're a Christian and you want to speak with someone um, who shares um, faith-based uh, ideologies with you, emotionally focused, there's tons of different ones. Um, you, I think you tried to hit on it earlier and, oh, right here, ethnically served. Yeah. So if you're a person of color, you may not want to talk to a white male, right? Like, right. Um, maybe you want someone who, let's say you're Hispanic. You want to speak with someone who comes from a similar culture who will kind of understand, mm-hmm. you know, especially with like how machismo, um, a lot of Hispanic cultures can be, um, so if you're a male, Hispanic male, and your whole life you've been told that you're not supposed to talk about your feelings, maybe you want to meet with a Hispanic woman who will kind of understand that um, there's LGBTQ as well. Um, so yeah, this is a great Jewish, Buddhist, mm-hmm. secular, non-religious. Yeah, so there's a bunch on psychology today. I'm really glad that you brought that up. And I feel like a bad podcaster. I should have already known that. No. <laughs> but... Well, it's good that you brought it up. Yeah, there's so much information that yeah, totally. is coming out. So, um, and I'll put a link to Psychology Today in the in the show notes. Um, let's talk about okay. So, you've you've picked a therapist. You have an appointment. Yeah. What what should we that someone expect? Oh, that can vary. Of course, <laughs> it's so hard to say. <laughs> this podcast is going to be like five hours long. I know, right? It's, Okay, if you go to this kind of therapist, or no, um, we could do like a generalized what you should expect from yeah. uh, a therapy session. Well, I think you know the first thing is making sure that you know that you're feeling respected as you go in. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you should expect that your therapist is on time, right. that they're getting you in. Um, you know, they're not twenty minutes late to their session. Um, I think also, um, gosh, this is, well, I don't know why this is such a hard question. Okay. So let me, let me just reframe it. How yeah. about what, if someone ends up picking you to yeah. be their therapist, what could they expect? What, what would happen when you first come in? Um, because I know what's going to happen. You're going to, you're going to do like a basic introduction and then blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And then, um, so kind of go through that so that if someone was to, um, go to therapy for the first time, they're yeah. not going to be going in kind of blind. They're going to, cause I know that some people are going to be really nervous. So maybe d- we can like dispel some of that nervousness. Absolutely. And that actually helps me frame like a more, you know, standard. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> no, no. Too broad of a stroke. No, no, you're fine. I think it's just where my mind went. Right. Nothing that you did. Um, so I think, I mean, first of all, you're going to, there are legal and ethical concerns that, you know, will happen or, considerations to be taken in the first session. So there's paperwork to sign. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go through a consent to treatment, which essentially goes through like, here's what you can expect. This is the nature of our relationship really clearly defined because, you know, I don't want my clients to have an expectation that there could be a dual relationship that, um, that we're going to be friends outside that if they friend me on Facebook that I'm going to accept, Um, So those are some of the things that we'll go over in a consent to treatment are what are the limitations of the relationship? What is the purpose of the relationship for therapy? 
Um, some of the potential, uh, consequences of therapy, like for example, if you're coming in to try and explore yourself in your relationship, Hey, there's a really good chance that as you're seeking therapy and growing and changing, your partner might not be doing the same. And in that sense, sometimes the relationship can be impacted. So you talk about some of the, um, you know, potential pitfalls, if you will, um, things that can happen as, uh, you know, just by the nature of coming into a greater sense of self-awareness. Um, another limitation that I'm going to talk about with my clients are if, um, you know, there's definitely a, a, it's normal to go ahead and think about hurting yourself or sometimes hurting others. However, if there's a seriousness of it or, you know, something that I'm concerned about, then it may be that collectively we're going to go ahead and seek other measures to address it to keep you safe. So I'm going to talk about the limits of confidentiality. Everything that you say in here is confidential, but if you do talk about hurting somebody else um, seriously, not just like off the top of your head kind of a thing. Um, Yeah. Like if you're like, Oh, I want to kill my coworker. Yeah, and this is how I'm going to do it, and this is when I'm going to do it. Yeah, now we have a problem. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. If you're just venting, don't, no one's going to tell on you. Right, exactly. And it's always, you know, it's a collaborative. I tell my clients it's collaborative. I'm never yeah. going to just randomly say, you know, you're never going to have the police show up at your door. Like, right. I'm going to talk to you about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, if I do have to break confidentiality. Um, so I think paperwork, going through all of those expectations, talking about fee structure, how right. much can you, uh, you know, one of the things Nevada passed a couple of years ago was called the No Surprises Act. So I'm going to talk about what you can expect for fees and how are we going to collect fees and all of that just to make sure that we're being completely transparent. Um, I'm going to ta- introduce myself, obviously, and my modality that I tend to come from and really trying to set up the norms and expectations. And then I'm going to ask my client to share with me what are some of the concerns um, that they might have? What do they need from me? What do they want from me? Um, So really, and, and then also talking about goals of therapy, because therapy is not just a conversation. It's conversation with a purpose. Right. And they need to know that one therapy session is not going to fix whatever it is that you think is broken or... Right. Anything else, right? Like, so the first one is almost like an introduction. Yeah. For both, for both the therapist and for the client. Absolutely. Right. Um, yeah. So, okay. And then, um, so let's say weeks go by and you're just not feeling your therapist. Yeah. How, how do you break (laughs) up with your therapist? Oh, it's so heartbreaking when that happens. I know. (laughs) Um, I think. I mean, I'd like to say just being completely open and transparent, Mm -hmm. but let's be honest, sometimes we have really, uh, we might be conflict avoidant or we might be worried about hurting the therapist's feelings. My suggestion is just to be honest about what wasn't working for you. Um, Hey, you know, I I really want to give you some feedback about what didn't work for me and this is why I'm not coming back. But I also understand that that it might feel uncomfortable and not something that people are ready for. What I don't suggest doing is just scheduling something and not showing up. Right. So that, that would not be the way to break up with your therapist. Um, You don't ghost your therapist. No. You shouldn't ghost people anyway. No, you shouldn't. (laughs) (laughs) But, but yeah, I think, 
Yeah, giving, uh, you know, being respectful and giving some time. And if you feel comfortable giving feedback about what didn't work. And sometimes it's just as simple as, I don't, like, I'm not vibing with you. Right. I, I just, I don't feel a sense of connection. And yeah. that's it. So if, um, I know tons of people who are probably listening and going, nope. Right. There's no way I'm saying that. <laughs> right, exactly. Is there is there a way, like, that they could either... Um, with body language or something like that? Or are there things that you pick up on yeah. when you, when you're, when you're in a session with a client and then maybe you will bring up, Hey, how is this working for you? Like, are you feeling, are you feeling, are you getting value from, from this? And if yeah. and that gives them the space to say, actually kind of no. Yeah. That's how I would operate as a therapist. Mm-hmm. And I definitely, I'm paying attention not only to content or what people are saying, but also what's not being said and body language and yeah. eye contact, all of the things, um, which also is dependent on culture. But yeah, I, that's something I would feel comfortable doing. But I also want to make mention that like a newer therapist, I've been practicing for 13 years. Yeah. So it's a skill set that I've developed over the years where I feel comfortable disclosing to a client like, Hey, you know, I'm feeling a sense of disconnection with you. And I'm just wondering, excuse me, if you're feeling the same, um, I would feel comfortable saying something like that, but I don't like a brand new therapist might not feel comfortable. So it's not necessarily that they don't care or they don't notice. They just Mm -hmm. may not have developed the skill set just yet to be able to feel confident in saying something like that. Even, even, um, I would argue maybe even a seasoned therapist may not even pick up on, pick up on it, you know, yeah. cause that could be an innate thing that, cause I know that I'm pretty good at reading people mm-hmm. when I'm speaking to them. I can tell when they're not interested in what I'm saying. Right. But I can also tell when they're totally interested. Right. And I think that that's just something that I'm lucky to have. And I don't know if that's, I mean, it's one thing you can definitely work on, but there's probably therapists who don't have that ability Right. And so if that's your therapist and you're not feeling it, you got to be brave Mm -hmm. because you're not doing yourself any favors by being with someone that doesn't seem to be helping or that you're not vibing with, like you said. Right. And I think it can help the therapist grow too. If you're, if you're honest about how you're experiencing them. I mean, that's in a perfect world, right? That's relational thinking is that. I'm going to let you know how I experience you because you may not be aware of the impact that you have on me. Um, yeah. It's just more information so that you can, you know, maybe operate right. in a pro-social way or <laughs> maybe yeah, that yeah, might yeah. not be the right word. But. Well, and, 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 and it doesn't even need to be anything that the therapist is doing and or not doing. It just right. could be, like you said, just not vibing. So right. if you are someone who doesn't like confrontation, just kind of reframe it and just be like, just it's, you you wouldn't go to a grocery store that you don't like. Right. The grocery store is not going to get upset that you don't go there and buy its products. Right. Same thing with a therapist. The therapist shouldn't, I would imagine. I mean, you are human, obviously you're probably going to be affected by it, especially if it's a client that you've, as much as you try not to, um, become attached to your clients i'm sure there's some right. there's some kind of um because especially if when you're when you're going through things together you build a camaraderie with each other and you become kind of a team yeah um but yeah 
Yeah. And and I mean, that's that transition to two person psychology. It's a recognition that just as I, as your therapist impact you as a client, Mm -hmm. you impact me. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I, and ex- I think earlier in your career, you, it can feel more like a heartbreak when, yeah. when somebody breaks up with you in your totally. therapy. Um, but definitely over time, it's more of, right. okay, what do I need to learn from this in order to grow and right. become a better professional? So I guess my, what I would encourage people to do is really think about it from that perspective of feedback can help them grow your therapist grow right, as right, a professional. Right. Um, yeah, and may- help others better. <laughs> Maybe we shouldn't call it breaking up either. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, <laughs> I just say that because I had a therapist like break up with me, essentially. Um, <laughs> she, uh, she, we had worked through the things that, that I needed to work through. Right. And it got to a point where it almost was like we were looking for things. And so she brought that up. And I looked at her and I wasn't upset at all. But I was like straight to her face. I go. Are you breaking up with me? Oh <laughs> and goodness. she and she was a younger, um, she was a not an apprentice. What are they called? Oh, an intern. Yeah, she was an intern. Yeah. Um, at UNR, and she turned bright red. And I was like, I'm just kidding. Like, I'm not upset about it, but you're totally right. I feel like we don't need to do this anymore. And it was right. it was fine. Yeah, but it was funny how I just instantly tried to like make a joke out of it right and then her reaction was not what I was expecting because she was probably really nervous about doing it too and so yeah I was like totally (laughs) and it can be nerve-wracking totally yeah because it can go both ways if you're Mm -hmm. not feeling like you're therapeutic and this or this relationship isn't working um with that intentionality that I had spoken of you know and sometimes it can happen sometimes therapist and client can become more um like friend like yeah you just come in and chat for an hour right right so then what's the purpose of the relationship have we digressed i mean that's something mm-hmm. that a therapist should be asking and um asking themselves and the other piece that i wanted to add is that no therapy relationship is into perpetuity i mean the goal of therapy is to hold space have this time with somebody until it's no longer, you know, they have the skill set necessary to help themselves right. um, and go f- go out into the world and use that. So yeah. there is a finite date for your time with that person. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think I typically go probably one or two months um, each time. Yeah. And towards the end, when I, when I get to where in my head, where if my therapy session becomes almost like a chore, then I know, okay, right. I'm good. I don't think I need to be going. Yep. If I'm looking forward to it, you know, if I'm like, okay, cool therapy tomorrow or whatever, yeah. then I know that I need to be going. Yeah. Um, that's kind of my way of gauging. Um, and as, as outspoken as I am, it does feel weird when I tell my therapist, look, I think, yeah. I think I'm good. Right. <laughs> Our time um, is done. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but Zero percent of them have ever been like, oh, really? They it was always right. like, yeah, no, totally, I get it. It's almost yep. like they were waiting for me to to say it. Yeah, um, yeah, I like that you said that. That's yeah. There's a finite because you don't you don't go see your regular doctor that right. many times. You know exactly. I mean, you 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 go to your doctor when when something's wrong, but you also go before something's wrong as a checkup. So I think that that's yep. if we could look at therapy. Um, that way, or just mental health in general, mental fitness in general, I think would be um, 
so much more helpful. I agree. Um, yeah, that's, oh, I, I did want to, so you, you told me something about your, your current research. Oh yeah. Um, and I thought it was really interesting when I just read it. So, um, can we, I know it's a little bit off subject, but yeah. kind of on subject. Totally. Tell me about it. I'm interested. So it, um, it was actually part of my dissertation, okay. um, using corpus linguistics, which is the analysis of a body of language, um, in order to, uh, you know, determine psychological or sociological meaning and essentially add to the body of knowledge that we, we have in order to maybe find steps forward to make changes. Um, so let me give you an example because that sounds really abstract. It was. Um, (laughs) so, um, my dissertation was, um, so two, um, two manuscripts were produced as a part of the dissertation. One of the studies was looking at domestic violence law across the United States, and I analyzed states that have the highest rates of domestic violence and the lowest rates of domestic violence to see what the linguistic differences were um, in law. Because what what I speculated was that um, states with really high rates of domestic violence maybe have low levels of protections for children um, or just low levels of protection in general for folks experiencing it. Uh, what I found was that, and of course there are limitations to the research I want to identify, but um, what I found was that low rate states have a more nuanced definition of domestic violence. Okay. I don't know if that's causation or correlation, or but just another piece of information. Right. Um, so you can see where that research could be useful is in advocacy work. So um, taking that information and going to the legislature, the legislature and talking about how maybe we need to change our definition of domestic violence in the law, as well as protections that are afforded to those experiencing it. So when you when you said rates of domestic violence, is this reported or is this um, like convicted Mm -hmm types of things? It's reported. And that's actually one of the limitations of the study is that you know, for example, North Dakota came up as a low rate state. Well, is it truly because North Dakota in their law, they're addressing DV in such a way that is really, truly lowering the rates or is the reporting somehow skewed so that the, you know, for example, in rural communities, sometimes the threshold of violence tends to be much higher. Mm-hmm. So I might not look at, um, like my my partner uh, screaming at me and throwing things through the the wall and, and making holes in the wall and um, telling me that you know if I leave they're gonna hurt my cat or you know whatever else mm-hmm. um, I might not consider that domestic violence I might consider a punch in the face or you right. know something like that domestic violence so definition can be a factor the the rates of reporting which are influenced by definition right. so. If I was going to, you know, redo the study or, you know, do it more comprehensively, I think that there would be other measures that I would add in to define those high and and low rate states. Right. And also, um, I mean, cultures within each of those states, I would imagine has, has an impact on that. Absolutely. Um, and, and even though this may sound off topic, I do think that it is kind of in the same vein. Um, yeah. is what we were talking about when it comes to like um, stigma mm-hmm. of therapy and mental health is yep. how language of it in legislation is. 
Yes. Uh, the cultures, like different cultures, like I'm, I'm only going to say this from my experience, but I feel like more, I don't want to say liberal states, but more states that have access to more cultures probably have higher rates of um, therapeutic attendance and and participation than say like midwestern states or more rural areas right. because it's not as accepted yes and so that makes perfect sense mm-hmm. um, and those cultures raise people who then turn into legislators you know so it's just this whole thing and so yeah like we were saying earlier if we could get if we could get a conversation started about therapy and about mental health at a young age, yes, then we those children will grow up already having an idea of how to deal with life in general. Yeah. And then those turn into adults who then they write legislation and it's this big snowballing effect. Yeah. And I mean, to kind of piggyback off of that, I mean, that the second manuscript really looked at cultural perspective. And so I analyzed movies, movie scripts. Oh. And they were English speaking countries. So there, you know, that's obviously a limitation. Right. But just looking at how domestic violence is depicted, um, because part of how we shape our perception of a problem is from the media that we're consuming. Right. And so I know there was a time in our country um, or in the United States, not that long ago, actually, where we saw domestic violence as a family problem Mm -hmm. rather than a larger societal issue. Uh, And that shaped how therapists responded, um, how law enforcement responded. So, um, So, yeah, the second manuscript really analyzed the language that we find in domestic violence movies over time, how it's changed over time, looking at um, 1930 to 2023. You know, it's interesting that we we think that that movies and other types of media like that are fantasy, but they're not. Mm -mm. They are direct um, projections of that culture. Right. And it's funny that, that we're talking about this. So, um, I've been doing a lot of like acting in in like theater, um, um, community theater locally here in town. And I have, um, callbacks for, um, where they're doing, it's called die difficult. It's a die hard parody. Okay. And so last night, (laughs) um, my friend Leaf and I decided we were going to watch die hard. And so I'm watching die hard and, we're we're texting each other and commenting and all this stuff. 1988 wasn't that long ago. No, it wasn't. But watching this movie, I'm like, it feels alien. I was even yeah. alive. I was, I was an adolescent. Near no, I might have even been a teenager in '88. Yes. So I was I was old enough to be aware of the culture, and looking back, I'm like, whoa, that's crazy. Yes. How different it is, and yeah. like the people were just smoking on the airplanes and yes. like in the airports and like alcohol was just everywhere. And, uh, leaf even mentioned how, and all the construction zones, there's pictures of topless girls all over in the construction zones. And that was just a thing that was okay then. Right. It was the norm. It was the norm, you know, and, 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 and to speak to, to speak to what you said about domestic violence, you get home Let's say, let's say like the nuclear family, you know, uh, mom, dad, kid, a dog, pick yeah. a fence. Um, wife has dinner ready. 
dad comes home, male, mom, whatever, father, uh, husband comes home, bad day at work, yells at wife, makes dinner, goes to bed, blah, blah, blah. That's just the thing that happened. Right. Right. And now, especially someone like Leaf's age, he's like 21. That sounds horrific to him. Yes. And But to me, I mean, it does still sound horrific to me, but then that was just like kind of a thing that happened and it was even worse in the 50s and the 40s. Yeah. Um, that's really interesting. Yeah. You'll have to send me your your um, your manuscripts. I want to read them. Yeah, you can. I'll definitely send you the link for them. They're actually in Oregon State Library um, okay. Scholar Archives. So and you can they're find, published, right? Yep. They're, oh, sweet. Well, yeah, they're published on the Scholar Ar- Archives, and I'm in the process of trying to submit both manuscripts to journals for publication. Oh, okay. So awesome. That's um, exciting. I'll totally keep you posted, but um, I'll I'll email them to you. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, yeah, where where are we in time? I feel like we've been talking forever. Yeah, hour and a half. It's a uh, lot to talk about. I know, and I could can, I could continue honestly. Um, was there anything else that you had that you wanted to kind of talk about? I didn't. I thought I think we covered a, a wide range of yeah. information, and and hopefully it's been helpful for those of you listening to. Yeah. Um, and of course, if you have questions, always feel free, you know, to reach out. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, I'll put your contact information if that's yeah, okay absolutely. in the, um, in the, in the show notes and in the, in the description. Um, last question. I'm, let's say I'm a listener. Yeah. I have no experience in therapy and I'm thinking about, um, maybe seeing someone, whether I have, whether I feel like I have an issue to deal with or, Maybe I just feel like I should or whatever. Yeah. What are some, what are some things, some advice you would give to me? As somebody who's seeking therapy? Yeah. I would, I think there's just, I would encourage you, um, to set aside the reservations and, and maybe some of the fear that's been holding you back, Mm -hmm. um, and, and try it out. You can always, I know it's uncomfortable um, sometimes when you try something new, but you can always step outside of it if it really doesn't feel like it's for you once you do it. So Mm. I would just say, find somebody that you can talk to about it. Um, If you are struggling with navigating the mental health world, because it can be really complicated, Mm. reach out to somebody who can help you. You do not need to go through this alone. Right. Absolutely. And, And I mean... I have tons of friends that go to therapy and so and I even tell my other friends that don't go like talk to me about it. Right. I can I I mean I'm not a therapist but I've done it enough to I can answer some of your questions and sometimes it's just you need a teammate to like kind exactly. of Exactly. You know they're not going to be able to go into your therapy appointment with you but right. like they can help out you know and and sometimes it just feels it feels so much better just knowing that you're not alone. Exactly. And that's that would be my advice to anyone. You're not alone. Yep. All of us are going through it. It's different for everyone, obviously, but mm-hmm. no one's no one has their shit together. Zero people do. See, Even I, therapists, I right? I totally agree with that yeah. statement. <laughs> therapists have therapists, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, 
Um, yeah, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks and, for having me. Yeah, you bet. I learned a lot today, so I can't wait to re-listen to it and really digest all of it. So, um, yeah, thanks for listening, and um, we'll see you in the next episode. All right, well, thanks for hanging out with me. I hope you got something useful from this episode. If this is your first time listening, uh, please consider subscribing so you don't miss out on any of the other fun things that we'll be talking about in the future. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, uh, I would encourage you to go to wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a little review. This really does help me grow the podcast. And of course, if you have any questions or comments or you just want to connect on all the other social medias, you can find me on Instagram at Life Nomadic Podcast, on Twitter at That Life Nomadic, uh, Facebook.com forward slash Life Nomadic Podcast, or you can just send me an email. Life Nomadic Podcast at gmail.com. Once again, thanks for listening. I look forward to talking to you guys, and we'll see you the next episode.